you may have seen a story in the news this week about a possible cure for cancer. Uh, it's early days, but, but doctors have found an experimental drug that appears to have worked against some cases of cancer. It's an incredible discovery. If it proves possible, reliable, safe, it'll be life-changing. It'll be world-changing. But it won't be enough to solve all of the world's problems. It won't be enough to solve all of our problems. Because there's a deeper problem, as you probably sensed as Esther read that challenging passage. A deeper problem than any medical doctor could ever solve. And let's pray now that the Lord Jesus will take his scalpel to our hearts and bring us his miracle drug. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these words to us, challenging, encouraging. We pray that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. So we've got a slightly longer passage this morning from 3 verse 13 through to 4 verse 12. And in it, we see four dangers in the Christian life, four traps we fall into. Um, the first three, helpfully, are introduced with questions in 3 verse 13, 4 verse 1, and 4 verse 4, and then there's a little kind of fourth PS in verses 11 and 12. Uh, and we, so we see four dangers, uh, and then in the middle we see a humbling and wonderful solution that God offers us in verses 7 to 10. Uh, and we're going to use some, uh, some W's to help us grapple with these dangers and the Lord's response to them. Uh, so first, danger one, wisdom that is skin deep. Wisdom that is skin deep. From chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Uh, who is wise and understanding among you? James asks. I think it's probably a little tongue-in-cheek. I don't think he's expecting his readers to, to raise their hands. Yep, yep, that's me. I'm pretty wise. Well, well spotted, James. I think it's more of an invitation to, to pay attention for those who consider themselves or are considered to be particularly mature, who might be inclined, whether they realize it or not, towards a little bit of pride, a little bit of boasting, verse 14. But those who think they are wise, well, let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom, James writes. As we've already seen in this book quite a few times, a tree is not known by its words, its branches, but by its deeds, its fruit. Wisdom will not be seen in what it says about itself, but in the life that accompanies it. So be careful. Be careful of looking at a person's words and assuming their level of wisdom. Because you can have the right answers, a, a genuine, deep understanding in your head, but deny the truth and fail to live a life that is in any form wise. And, and there's something in the church, James warns us, that, that looks like wisdom, thinks it is wisdom, but is only skin deep. When you scratch under the surface, the gold just comes off on your fingers. And, and it's, it's fake because the person who purports to have it has not dealt with their heart. They haven't seen what still lurks within them. 
the bitter envy, the selfish ambition. Verse 14. And James speaks in strong terms about such wisdom. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Feel how those adjectives intensify. And this result, verse 16, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This unheavenly wisdom leads nowhere good. It leads to rebellion, riot, all sorts of vile things being done. Wisdom that is only skin deep isn't, isn't just neutral, underwhelming, disappointing. It can be dangerous and it can be damaging. So weigh carefully the wise words that come out of other people's mouths, the wise words that come out of your own mouth. Look to see, is there a wise life that matches it? And this has challenged the way uh, I think about wisdom this week. I think I do tend to think of wisdom as being kind of up here. A wise person is someone who speaks right things, sorry, who thinks right things and says right things. And of course, that's part of wisdom. But wisdom that's just up here and doesn't go down here and then come out of our mouths and out into our lives. Well, it may not be real wisdom at all, James warns. So let's not be too quick to think of ourselves as wise, to accept other people complimenting us, telling us we're wise, because no one sees our hearts like God does. But true wisdom, or true wisdom, isn't just seen in what it says about itself but in the life that accompanies it. True wisdom is the product of a transformed heart, and it will be seen in good conduct, in true words, true thoughts that are actually lived out, that make a difference in our lives. It is filled with humility, verse 13. It doesn't point the finger at itself. Look at me, look what I said. I I got it right again. Of course I did. No, it points out to the good words, the actions of others, and to our Father, the source of all and any wisdom. And look how James describes it in verse 17. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. True wisdom is innocent. It's not mixed, contaminated. It's not envious or ambitious, out for itself. It's out to serve others. It's willing to submit. It seeks peace. It shows mercy. It's unbiased, sincere. And this true wisdom reaps a harvest of righteousness. In verse 18. I don't know about you, but I would far rather the fruit of any wisdom I have be actual goodness, verse 18, than just my own boasts to myself or even to other people about how great I think I am, verse 14. So our first danger is that we can accept a wisdom that is skin deep. The second danger, warring wants that foster fallouts. Warring wants 
that foster fallouts. From chapter one, verses, uh, chapter four, verses one to three. Um, though the uh, editor inserted chapter headings, kind of break it up for us, we come crashing back down to earth in four, verse one, after this beautiful picture of the life produced by wisdom at the end of chapter three. We come crashing back down with the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Uh, the Christians James is addressing don't seem to entirely be peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Rather, their church life looks like it contains a pretty steady stream of, of squabbling and bickering and fallouts. Why? Well, James writes, don't these fights and quarrels come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. It's the same problem again. They have some knowledge of the truth, right thoughts, good understanding, sound doctrine. That they self-identify as being wise. They haven't really seen what's inside their hearts, the sin that still lurks there. Because all these conflicts... Well, they might say that you know, they're neither here nor there, they don't matter, or that they're caused by other people's sin and mistakes, or just by the tough circumstances and trials of life, that they're not a patch on the divisiveness and hatred we'd see out there in the real world. But James won't let them off the hook quite that easily. He writes in strong terms and warns them that these conflicts are caused by their own desires battling within them, their warring wants. Are caused by selfishness and by mixed motives. We want to serve humbly and sacrificially behind the scenes, but we also sort of want to be noticed and appreciated. We want everyone's voice to be heard, but we want our voice to be the one that's listened to. We fight for the truth, and yet so often it's just a battle of egos and a refusal to compromise. If only we'd look at these outside quarrels and then look inside and see how much it's our selfishness, our jealousy, our anger and resentment that causes these fallouts. If only we would realise that so often we do not have because we do not ask God, verse 3, and we try to get from other people the love, affection, esteem, blessings that we can, that we should, that we must come to God for that he would willingly give us if we would only ask. Or if only we'd realise that when we ask, we so often ask with wrong motives. We don't really want God to be honoured. We don't want them to be built up. We want us to be proved right. It's about me, my glory, my satisfaction, my pleasure, not God's honour. We've had a few church meetings recently. We had an elders away day yesterday. Uh, which we devoted to pouring over some of the topics that we've been discussing over the last year or so, elders, deacons, pastors, staffing, leadership. I think we're good as a church at being united and loving one another despite our differences. But it really struck me working on the passage this week how fragile our relationships can be and quite how easily they can be marred in difficult conversations like those by words that we say too quickly or with wrong motives. You can um, ask the other elders later how you think I got on with that yesterday, or maybe don't. So two dangers so far. Wisdom that's skin deep. Warring wants that foster fallouts. 
Uh, we're going to skip ahead now uh, and, and look briefly at verses 11 and 12. And then we'll come back and look at what I think is probably the heart of this passage, maybe even the whole letter in uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 10. Uh, so jumping ahead to 4, verses 11 to 12, the third danger, words that weigh others up. Words that weigh others up. And these two verses, I think, are a bit of a PS, um, probably linking back to what was in chapter 3 more than, than what we've just, uh, just been reading. Um, but let me read them again now. Uh, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? So I think the issue at hand here is is the weighing up of other Christians, maybe a specific word or action, maybe just more generally. How could they make that decision? What were they thinking when they did that? She's a bit of a write-off. I wouldn't ask him. Small comments, minor things. Not a patch on the way we see people being spoken about in the world around us. But still completely unfitting for God's people, James warns. Why? Well, because in condemning someone else for failing to keep an element of the law, we position ourselves as people who can, people who do keep the law. And if you're as sinful as me, that's a very dangerous place to be putting yourself. Because they may have a sharp tongue. They may have a short fuse. They may make the wrong calls. They may lack the generosity, the hospitality, the mercy Christians should show. What about that tendency towards self-pity and selfishness that lurks in my heart that I think no one else sees? Or that seed of anger and bitterness deep within me It's the same issue again, isn't it? It's the skating over of my heart, the failure to look inside and see the sin that still lurks in me as I sit on my throne and condemn someone else. Because it's so easy to pick out the speck in their eye, to see the best in me and the worst in them. But if the books of our hearts were opened in front of each other, I suspect we might find ourselves suddenly feeling a lot more gracious and forgiving than we had been before. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Don't try to join him in destroying. Come to him as the one who can save you. And if we want a clue as to how we sometimes do this, I think it's to look at our strengths. What do we think we're pretty good at in the Christian life? Because I think it's those things that it's easy to look down on others for failing in. Maybe you're uh, great at looking out for struggling people, but why do they never seem to notice? Maybe you're good at building in regular time with the Lord, but they hardly seem to read their Bible or pray at all. Maybe you're good at being the one who, who always turns up, but they're hardly ever there. Maybe you're great at evangelism, but do they even have any non-Christian friends? And then look at how little you try to explain or understand um, why they might struggle in some of the things you feel that you're you're strong in. And look at how quick you are to generalize about their whole person from that thing 
They always, they never, they just don't seem to get. Watch out for words that weigh up. That's God's rule, not ours. So we've had our first three dangers. Uh, Our final one now in, in the heart of, I think, this section. Danger four, warmth towards this world. Warmth towards this world. In verses four and five of chapter four. And I think possibly this danger falls into a slightly different category from the first three. Uh, it could even, I think, possibly lie underneath the, the others. Uh, and we feel the difference in James's address as he begins it. Uh, no more brothers and sisters. But verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Of course, again, it's a heart problem. It's the danger of failing to spot that our hearts are still in love with this world. We're trying to two-time God and date the world at the same time as being in a relationship with him. We don't want to give up God, but we don't want to give up the world either. We want to have it both ways. We want the joys of Christian community, knowing God personally, a certain future. But we don't want to give up our earthly comforts, dreams and ambitions. We want to have it both ways. And we can't, says James. And if that feels a little harsh, we only need to read the teaching of the other apostles, 1 John 2, verse 15, the prophets, Hosea 1 to 3, Ezekiel 23, Moses, Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20, and of course Jesus himself, and Mark 8, verses 34 to 38. The whole Bible tells us that we cannot have it both ways. We cannot live for praise now and also then. We cannot expect the best of this world and the next. We can't love God with our whole hearts and also love our bank balances, our homes, our careers, our appearances. And that's not to say that we won't know any blessing from God in this life. Think about what Jesus said to the disciples in Mark 10, verses 29 to 30. But it doesn't, doesn't mean that we can't live for those things and demand them. So be careful, says James. Because if you let yourself fall in love with the world, if you choose friendship with the world, do you realise what you're also choosing? Do you realise that you're also choosing to become God's enemy? And that's a heavy price to pay. We can't have it both ways. There's all sorts of ways that will apply for different people in the room. I just think one application where we particularly see this is, is in relationships. The Bible gives us a clear picture that believers shouldn't look to marry unbelievers. How, how could you bind yourself to someone who doesn't share the very most important thing in your life? And yet so often people's journey out of the church begins with their journey into a relationship with someone who doesn't love Jesus. And at the beginning they think they can have it both. Do both, be friends with God and with the world. But often they don't realise until it's too late that they've given their heart to someone else. 
if that's something you're tempted towards or struggling with, do, do talk to someone about it. But why can't we have it both ways? Verse 5, we have a jealous God. Do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? Now that might not sound like a very good thing. God, jealous, really? And jealousy is so often wrong when it's wanting what someone else has, laying claim to something that isn't really mine. But there's a right kind of jealousy too. A jealousy that cares deeply and is deeply passionate about the things that rightly belong to it, the things it takes responsibility for. Every now and then, one of my young children will announce that they want to be part of someone else's family, whoever they've just had a good play date with normally. And it's right that something, uh, something within me lurches in response to that. I don't simply go off and start talking to these other parents about a you know, potential transfer, a sort of time scale, <laughs> if they're willing to take on my child. Of course I don't. I love them. I care deeply and passionately about my children. I feel keenly my responsibility to take care of them. I don't think they should just give themselves away to someone else. I'm jealous over them. And God is jealous over us. He's not willing to share. We're precious. We rightly belong to him. He's bought us with the blood of his son. He's not willing to share. And we wouldn't want to belong anywhere else to anyone else. No one can love us like he can. No one can offer us what he can. It's good news for us that our God is a jealous God. And do you realize that that's how he feels about you? Teens might remember from Friday night, but we were saying it's a bit like, a, bit like a pack of M&Ms or a pack of Sparties. We're not just one individual M&M. It doesn't really matter. If it falls under the sofa, you're not going to try too hard to get it back. You're just going to eat the next one. No, God cares for us individually. He's jealous for you personally. You fall under the sofa, God rips apart the sofa to get you back. Look at Luke 15, if you don't believe me. So we should give up our warmth to the world. And now we move into uh, our final point, the solution. God's solution. Uh, wave our white flags as we welcome his grace. Wave our white flags as we welcome his grace. In verses 6 to 10. We don't need to chase the world. We don't need to stay in the world's good books. Because verse 6, he gives us more grace. We don't need to throw ourselves in desperation at the feet of the powers of this world because God gives us more grace. He loves to look after the lowly, the humble, the shamed and the rejected and lift them up. And we don't need to fear the jealousy of a God who burns for us like a consuming fire because he gives us more grace. He gives us all the love, grace, and mercy we need to stay the course with him. Let me read what a Bible teacher called Alec Matia wrote on this phrase, because I don't think I can top it. Um, he wrote, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He's never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. 
Whatever we may forfeit when we, put our, when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation, for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. We may play false to the grace of election, contradict the grace of reconciliation, overlook the grace of indwelling, but he gives more grace. Even if we were to turn to him and say, what I have received so far is much less than enough, he would reply, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. But his grace isn't, it's not a free pass to use and abuse as we like. Because verse 6 continues, and he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. So a quote from Proverbs 3, verse 34. God's grace isn't a means to a sort of instant, effortless sanctification for all who drink its elixir. It needs to be drunk in a condition of humility. It is the humble who truly enjoy and reap the benefit of God's grace. And James spends the next four verses spelling out what that humility looks like. Uh, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What a list. And of course, it's a list that goes right to the heart. No change of behaviour, no fixing of human relationships is going to be enough here. A few more briefer W's to help us get to grips with this list. At number one, we are to wave our white flags, verse 7 and verse 10. It's the same point as verse 6. We see it in the command to submit. We see it in the command to humble ourselves, bookending these instructions. We need to give ourselves up and give ourselves over to God and admit that he is God, and we are not. But this surrender isn't, it isn't passive. It's, it's the language of enlisting, of taking an allegiance, switching our Lord from me, sin, the devil, the world, to Christ. And if we do, well, Satan will not stand a chance, verse 7. He will run, scared for his life, As we resolve by the Spirit to resist his powers, what a promise. We must wave our white flags and surrender. Second, we must want to draw near to God. Verse 8, if we keep God at arm's length, if we keep our distance from him, never coming close, not personally, then he will respect our wishes and he will stay away. But if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Another incredible promise that we can count on. Third, we're to wash ourselves inside and out. Further on in verse 8. Evoking memories of the ancient priestly rites of the Torah, the ritual cleansing, the garment cleaning, the blood sprinkling. James urges us to wash our hands to cleanse our actions, our words, our lives from wrongdoing, and to purify our hearts, to cleanse our thoughts, our loves, our motives. 
Only if we are clean on the inside, as well as the out, can we avoid the double-mindedness he's already warned us of back in chapter 1, verse 8. And of course, it's God who, who cleans us. We can't, we can't actually purify ourselves. But as we must come to him and submit, so we must come, knowing we need to be washed. We need to get in the shower, so to speak, no matter how cold it's going to be. And then we are to wail over our wretchedness in verse 9. We are to see ourselves as we really are. We are to see our world as it really is. And that should make us mourn. It should make us grieve, mourn and wail for the wrongness, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, the sin we see. As Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, as he wept over Jerusalem, so we should weep. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus told us. And if we come to God in this way, in humility, if we wave our white flags, if we want to draw near to him, if we wash ourselves inside and out, wail over our wretchedness, what will he do? Verse 10, he will lift you up. If we will come right down, if we will see ourselves as we really are, if we will get down in the dust, God will not leave us there. He will lift us up. Just as he lifted Mary and led her to sing in Luke chapter 1, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Just as he lifted up the tax collector, he beat his breast and prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God will lift us up when we come to him in humility. And not just in the here and now, sort of, getting us back on our feet, brushing us down. Now he will lift us higher up than we could possibly imagine. For we are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ for all of eternity as his children. God makes us sons and daughters, co-heirs, younger brothers and sisters of Christ, vice-regents in his extraordinary new creation. If we will only look at our hearts, if we will only come to him in humility, if we will only wave our white flags and welcome his grace, he will give us more grace and he will lift us up. Let's pause for a moment and I'll pray. Father, we repent of how, how little we know our own hearts, how little we see our own sin, how quick we are to think that we are wise, that we are good, that our problems are other people's fault, or only our circumstances and never our sin. But Father, we thank you that if we come to you in humility, if we wave our white flags, if we surrender, then you will give us more grace. You will lift us up. Help us to do that today. Help us to do that each day. Help us to better know the grace that you give us. Amen.